Hello and welcome to the very first history podcast. Um, I have struggled with trying to figure out how to start this podcasting series. And after bouncing around several ideas, and I mean, we just have a stack of subjects that we wanted to discuss, hitting um, why I wanted to start the podcast in the first place, um, I decided to start with one that is well known to me and probably well known to my audience um, is the Hannibal story. One of the most important things that you guys need to remember listening to this podcast is that I am not a history professor. I'm a history student under several very um, fantastic history professors. And I one day hope to be a history professor, but I am not one yet. And I am a fan of history. And I know these stories, and I know these stories well from the primary and secondary resources. The problem is, I find when discussing this stuff with other people who are not history uh, majors or who really don't enjoy history at all, is that they all seem to have the same complaint, which is, you know, you get bogged down in the dates and in the names and in the numbers and in all the other boring things that nobody wants to remember. You know, this happened in this city on this day by this general and your interest uh, goes out the window with all those numbers. So I'm trying to tell these stories uh, in more of a story format um, so that it's more interesting, so that it has more character. Uh, this story will probably be one of the better ones that I screw up. In it, we have tragedy, we have loss, we have family, we have war elephants. We have a lot of very interesting things that I feel like we can capitalize on while not spending so much time on the dates and everything else. Please uh, Please note the fact that I am unscripted. So I will mess up some of my words due to my Southern accent and due to the imprompt nature of this podcast. I will also probably use the wrong word and the wrong pronunciation for some of this. Some of the names here are very hard to pronounce and, or at least pr- pronounced correctly. And I might stumble and use the words um a little bit. And I beg all of you just to bear with me on that. Um, I'm still getting new to this. And without any further ado, uh, let's get started on the first part of the Hannibal series, uh, Hannibal's father, Hamilcar. Hamilcar Barca is a very interesting character. He has three sons that go on to fight in the Second Punic Wars. Uh, Hannibal Barca, who is the most famous... And we all know, in some degree, you probably heard him in 7th or 8th grade history class, you know, crossed the Alps, had elephants, fought the Romans. Um, He also had another son named Hazardrubal and another son named Mago, um, all with the last name Barca. And Hazardrubal and Mago will fight in Spain, leading Carthaginian armies at the same time as their brother. However, they are not famous for crossing the Alps and aren't as well documented by the Romans. Um, So we get less information about them and they are less famous. However, all three of Hasdrubal's children will fight against 
uh, Rome in the Second Punic War. They will actually be known as the Lion's Brood. And the reason that they're known as the Lion's Brood is because Hasdrubal will fight against Rome in the First Punic War. The thing about Hasdrubal is, much like his son Hannibal will um, years later, he will fight Rome primarily in Rome's backyard. Not on the Italian peninsula, but he will fight them on the island of Sicily. Now, a little bit of background is, the Punic Wars are, for those of you who don't know, there's three of them. They occur between Carthage and Rome, and spoiler alert, at the end of the Third Punic War, uh, Carthage loses, Rome levels it, sets it on fire, yada, yada, yada. Um, the important thing to note here is when we talk about Rome, there's a precedent that comes along with it, for those of you who don't know. During this time, which is around 271 uh, to 264-ish uh, BCE, Rome is not yet a great power. They do not control all of the Mediterranean as they're known for nowadays in history. They are still a very much a virgining empire, and they had basically just finished conquering the Italian peninsula. Um, literally year, just a couple years before this war starts, they had just quelled the last uh, rebellion of Italian city-states. And basically what happens is Rome and Carthage get in a squabble over the island of Sicily, which sits basically right in between them. Uh, Sicily is a little bit closer to Italy, but North Africa, which is where Carthage is based, is fairly close as well. Um, many of the Greek city-states and little colonies that uh, it, Rome and Carthage had on Sicily uh, are all mixed in on this island. And there are a couple rebellions, there's a couple different things, and Rome and Carthage are allied with several different of those city-states. And one thing leads to another, and Rome sends in an army, Carthage sends in an army, both to help the same ally, and they actually end up fighting each other. This is kind of what you would expect to happen when you have two almost equal powers in the same or very closely similar regions. Uh, eventually they'll butt heads, and uh, so falls the three Punic Wars. The first Punic War, which we're going to talk about today, is a war that lasts 23 years. Um, this is one of, if not the largest, or I'm sorry, not largest, longest wars that ever had occurred in ancient history up to this time. And it was actually probably one of the largest as well. It was by far the most navally... Uh, influenced. And by that I mean there was so much naval warfare in this and so much naval tragedy that it really brings light to the technologies used at the time and we're going to nerd out on that a little bit as well. Um, so the war of the First Punic War is fought on three fronts. One is in North Africa, one is on the ocean or in the sea of the Mediterranean Sea. And one is in Sicily. None of the fighting will occur on the Italian peninsula. Uh, what you can take away from that is right away, Rome is the aggressor. 
not maybe in how the war started. They both kind of came to Sicily for the fight. But Rome, once they decided they were going to war against Carthage, really brought the fight to them. And this is impressive because before this war starts, the Romans did not have a navy. And when I mean they don't have a navy, they used merchant ships that they hired or confiscated to get their army to Sicily in the first place. They did not have a navy. They did not have any sort of organized military warships. And they're going against Carthage, which has arguably the best and one of the largest navies in the Mediterranean. But Rome, all the same, gets their armies to Sicily, and they have a big fight against the Carthaginians there. Um, they also take an army and they attack North Africa, where Carthage is, and they have several battles outside of different city-states that are controlled by Carthage. Um, and lastly, they have several naval conflicts and a couple different naval tragedies on the ocean. So, we're going to focus mostly on Hamilcar and his guerrilla war units in Sicily because that will cater to Hannibal's future in probably 20 years or so in the Second Punic War. However, a couple things that need to be noted right away is the Romans were terrifying to the Carthaginians. And the reason they were terrifying, they weren't terrifying before this war, but they became terrifying very quickly. And the reason for this is primarily their actions on the sea. They did not have a naval military when they went into this war. However, they got their hands on, I believe the story goes, they got their hands on a shipwrecked Carthaginian quadrine, which is, for those of you who don't know, it's a big, mostly ore-powered uh, battleship with a giant like bronze ram just below the waterline. So the general idea was, you know, you would get however many slaves on the oars and they would row as hard as they could and they would be directed, you know, one side would stop rowing for a second and the other side would keep rowing. It's like a giant canoe basically as a powering source. And with that bronze ram, they would basically just try their best to smash their sh the front of their ship with that bronze ram into the side or the back end of other people's ships. And that what that bronze ram just beneath the water would do is it's going to punch through the hull of the other ship and then all the slaves would pull back with their oars, backing the ship up, and then water would flow into the hull and the ships would sink. The Romans get a hold of this technology, right, from the Carthaginians. They don't have any sort of navy. The Carthaginian probably have well over a thousand uh of these ships out in the water. Romans don't have any. The Romans take these ships that they are building because they immediately just copy the design and they realize that they don't really know how to maneuver in the ocean because they don't really do this. They don't, they don't fight on the open water. That's not something the Romans historically were known for. The Carthaginians do it all the time. It's the thing that they are arguably one of the things they're best at. So they're trying to figure out how these things work, how they work, and they realize we don't have to fight the way the Carthaginians do. 
Carthaginians are going to use this ram. They're going to try and hit us. That's their deal. We don't necessarily have to use that, and we don't necessarily have to use only that. They do some of the best innovations on these ships that I, I don't even imagine people in the ancient world doing, but they do. For instance, one of the things that they invent is this giant ladder thing that will sit like 100 feet straight up in the air with this big spike at the end of it. So they'll sail up next to another ship and they won't know exactly what's going on. And people are shooting arrows and everything else. And then all of a sudden this giant drawbridge-like thing just drops from their ship with a spike that just embeds itself in the deck of the other ship. And then all of a sudden Roman soldiers will run across the deck and then just storm the enemy ship. The advantage to that is, hey, now we got their ship. Great. B, Roman soldiers can beat Carthaginian soldiers any day of the week, particularly Carthaginian sailors who aren't well armored because they're worried about having to swim. So Romans are basically taking their land infantry units and using them in a way that they're accustomed to on sea battles, which is is innovative as hell and probably terrifying for the Carthaginians. Now, most of that was just me getting that out of my system. Let's get into Hamilcar. Hamilcar is a well-known general in Carthage. The Bracchae or Bracchae or Barca or however you want to pronounce it, family, in Carthage is sort of like one of these great rich families that you hear about all the time in the Roman system. You know, both these systems were like eerily similar. The Carthaginians had a republic with a senate run mostly by rich elites. The Romans had a republic with a senate run mostly by rich elites. And the Barca family is one of those rich families that, you know, their sons go off and they become generals and you know they make lots of money and they do politics in the capital and all this. And so Hamilcar Barca is just following along that family lineage when he gets assigned to go to Sicily to fight the Romans. He gets to Sicily and they have a big fight and the Romans basically lose and they leave for quite a while, right? And because the Romans are beating the shit out of the Carthaginians on sea battles and Carthage wasn't expecting this. And then to double down on that, once the oceans were a bit safer for armies to move across, Rome was able to send armies to Northern Africa and take the fight directly to home. So Carthage and its protectorates were really kind of having their hands full. So they got Hamilcar there to Sicily. You know, he had some minor successes, a couple of, minor victories, and then, you know, basically they were like, hey, we can't help you anymore. No more money, no more mercenaries, no more anything. And one of the things, and this will come up in all three Punic Wars, one of the things you have to understand about the Carthaginian army versus the Roman army is Carthage is huge into hiring mercenaries. And that's what Hannibal Carr's army is mostly made up of. It's what Hannibal's army will be mostly made up of. It's what almost all of their armies are mostly made up of, is different mercenaries from different regions, some from Spain, some from North Africa, even Gallic tribes will come and fight. 
that are hired by Carthage because Carthage is extremely wealthy due to all of its trade and its colonies in Spain and different parts of North Africa and islands in the Mediterranean. So Carthage figures, why do our own fighting when we can pay people to die for us? And so that's what they do is Hamilcar is leading an army of mostly mercenaries with a core group of Carthaginian infantrymen. Um, What's impressive about that is it's very difficult to get mercenaries to fight in at-odd situations. If you are numbering the enemy at five to one and you have mercenaries, the mercenaries don't really care. They're here for a paycheck. They're going to go in. They're going to fight. They're going to win. They're going to come out. And they're going to go back to their families with their money. But if it's five to one against you and you have an army of mostly mercenaries, mercenaries usually just want to leave at that point. And they're like, you know what? Yeah, I don't get the money, but I'm still alive. And they want to go back home. So both in Hannibal's case and Hamilcar's uh, situation, it's very impressive that both of these generals don't lose their armies right away. Hamilcar gets stuck on this island with no money and no way to get back to mainland North Africa. And what he does is from basically the time he hits the ground to when the peace treaty between Carthage and Rome is signed, he goes completely guerrilla warfare. He keeps raids going. He keeps attacking supply lines. He keeps small skirmishes going. He makes it impossible for the Romans to really secure Sicily. And he does a fantastic job. He doesn't really lose conflicts, though he doesn't have any major ones. And he fights there for, I mean, I'd say probably six years. Yes, he fights in Sicily for about six years, according to my notes. I apologize, everybody. First time. Anyways, he fights there for about six years with almost an army of entirely mercenaries. He has no resupply of money, no resupply of fresh troops, no way to hire new mercenaries. So if he loses men, he doesn't get to replace them while he's on this island. The Romans, meanwhile, are bringing in new recruits all the time and fresh troops and everything else. You know, this is a 23-year-long conflict. He's there for the last six years of it, but it's 23 years long. And, you know, the Romans do not have the problem of mercenaries running away because they don't have mercenaries. What Romans have are Roman troops from Rome or from surrounding city-states of Rome or from Italian allies who go there, they fight alongside people from their own city in their own units, all right? And this is back before Roman... Romans have like a professional army. So these are guys who basically are kind of ad hoc thrown together and the armies, you know, are pulled back apart when the war's over. So these aren't professional troops, but they're very experienced in their battles against other Italian states. And I mean, it's a 23 year long war. You get used to war and conflict and battling um, together. So Romans don't have to worry about their troops retreating nearly as often because their troops are as invested as anybody else in the war. Um, Whereas the Carthaginians have a bit more of an issue of morale 
when it comes to their almost entirely mercenary armies. Um, one of the advantages that the Carthaginians do bring to the table, however, is the Numidian cavalry. They have Numidian cavalry through the First Punic War and through most of the Second Punic War. As a general rule, if you see a Carthaginian general with the last name Barca, and he has more Numidian cavalrymen than the other side does, they win the, the battle. Not the war, the battle. They win that battle, just as a general rule, if you can find that, those two pieces of information. And the reason is because Numidians, much like Mongol tribes, much like uh, steppe tribes in general in the Asian steppe, and much like Native Americans in the late 18th century um, in the United States, they were born and raised on horseback. That's how they war. That's how they fight. That's their whole deal. Um, they're very, very big into the horse. And so when you bring them onto the battlefield and you put them up against, you know, regular cavalry troops who, you know, are basically infantrymen that were thrown up on a horse, it's, it's not even a contest. They, they wipe them off the map pretty quickly. And they'll also, uh, historically speaking, they're also willing to engage infantrymen, which is something horseback riders don't usually want to do. It's uh, not a very fun activity to run a horse into a big pile of metal with spears and swords sticking out of it. But these Numidians supposedly did that. They did it apparently quite often and were pretty used to it and pretty effective at it. And if you think about it, a guy wielding a sword with the power of a horse behind the blade of the sword uh, is a lot better than the guy who's just swinging a sword as hard as he can from foot. So there was that advantage. The other advantage that the Carthaginians brought to the table was war elephants. Now, Hamilcar doesn't get to use uh, war elephants except at the very beginning of his campaign. He brings a couple of them to the island of Sicily. They don't make it very long. They die. Um, but the advantage that he had was for first off the intimidation factor of initially starting the battle off with a war elephant was impressive secondly you have that persona of a wild card the romans don't have that the romans had never seen elephants before this you know wars these wars started and so when you run up on the island of sicily with three, four war elephants, they crash into the Roman armies. This is an early advantage. You know, it compensates for the morale of your mercenaries, which is probably high considering you just started the war, and for, you know, inexperience and everything else. Eventually, he loses these elephants, and he has to revert to guerrilla warfare and X, Y, and Z. But as an initial start, it's so cool. I mean, because we think about this, and war elephants for Carthage are something that people debate about because there isn't a lot of archaeology of archaeological evidence for what they were like, what they looked like, how they were set up, and X, Y, and Z. You get a lot more of that information in India and other Middle Eastern tribes that had them, but we don't get a lot of it from Carthage mostly because most of the Carthaginian accounts are lost to us due to you know them losing, but. What we do know is, 
first off, they're very hard to kill naked. Just one elephant by itself running around. It's very difficult to kill them when they're in a rage. And, you know, you put some big two-ton wild animal in the middle of a mass of men who are trying to kill it, which are making it crazy, you know, bad things are going to happen to that group of men. It can be very effective in throwing lines off, messing up formations, and, you know, general brutality. You add to that that there is some account that these elephants were probably wearing some sort of armor, some sort of leather armor, possibly some sort of metal-plated or chainmail, though that seems unlikely. We do know that for certain their tusks were either sharpened or had iron tips added to them um, to make them more deadly, more efficient. Um, They also had riders on them, sometimes two or three, sometimes with arrows um, or bows and arrows. And this was very scary, very dangerous, very effective against Italian troops who had never seen war elephants you know italian troops at best were used to horses and maybe dogs on the battlefield and even during these early periods they weren't really that used to dogs um so an elephant really threw them off and i mean just put yourself in that situation we even know what elephants are like you you see them at a zoo or anywhere else and you kind of get an idea what they're about but then imagine you and all your buddies who just finished like a basketball pickup game. All right, well, now you got to fight off this elephant. Like it's very, it's very, it throws you off. It, it's very intimidating. And even if they were, you know, knocked out of the game fairly quickly because they're big, easy targets to hit um, in a battle, it's still got an intimidation factor, you know. For those, for those of you who like war games, it's like a plus 100 intimidation factor. It's crazy. Um, when you walk out on the battlefield and you don't even know what to call it. You don't even know to call it an elephant. You know, you just see this big monster that's uh, coming at you with guys on its back shooting at you. It, it's, it's terrifying. So Hamilcar does a campaign through Sicily of guerrilla warfare, hitting supply lines, everything else. He's getting very little support from Carthage and he is largely successful. Um, where things kind of fall apart is Carthage doesn't do that well on naval battles. They lose almost their entire navy um, fighting the Romans due to the Romans' novel uh, sailing abilities and battle tactics on the ocean that turn out to be surprisingly effective. If not surprisingly effective, surprisingly surprising for the Carthaginians. And because of that, uh, for one way or the other, they lose. And by the way, these are giant naval battles. And I, and I might come back and do a different podcast just on these naval battles and, and what little information we get about them. But I mean, during this time period, so little was still known about sailing. Like they had a lot of innovations, a lot of novelties and everything else. You know, we call these big Navy thing, these quadrimes and these big navies that sail across the Mediterranean. But one of the things to note is like they lose more men to storms in these battles and in these campaigns than they do to actual fighting. Um, I believe at one point in the war, the Romans will have to make sort of a uh, escape from uh, North Africa as they're kind of getting pushed up against the uh, coastline. 
by Carthaginian forces. And it's sort of one of those uh, last stand Dunkirk type evacuation moments where it's like, oh my God, the whole army could be wiped out, but the Navy gets there just in time and saves them all. And on their way back from saving those guys from the Carthaginian forces, uh, they get hit by a storm and Rome loses something like 100,000 guys. And I mean, and when we say 100,000 guys, we don't mean 100,000 soldiers, you know, how many soldiers were there is debatable. You know, you also have to include the sailors, the, you know, the cooks, the servant boys, all that, you know. But still, 100,000 people in the water at the same time because of a storm drown, you know. And you lose, you know, pick a number of how many people could, how many ships it takes to get 100,000 people anywhere. Um, probably, you know, less than a thousand, but you know, more than 400, but you're losing a lot of ships. You're losing a lot of people. And by the way, this isn't at the end of the war and it isn't the cause of the end of the war. It's just a footnote in the war. And that's the impressive thing about the Romans and the Carthaginians is this war really goes on for a long time because both of them have near misses and near victories. And the reason they can have something like 100,000 guys sink in a storm and continue to fight is because of the way these city-states are set up. They are able to take a hit way better than most other city-states and nations before them and during that time. You know, Carthage loses almost all of its navy relatively soon in the war. They lose an entire army on Sicily. It's still there. It's still fighting, um, thanks to Hamilcar. But they don't have it in northern Africa when you know their actual city state is being invaded. They don't have anything going on in Spain. Rome is making gains there that they didn't even expect to make because there's just nobody over there to defend it. And you know. They're taking hits left and right, but they're continually getting back up. Meanwhile, the Romans lose the battle in Sicily right up until the very end when they can finally get an army over there. They lose 100,000 guys in the war. They have to build an entire navy from the very beginning. You know, they lose several conflicts in North Africa. And by the way, they're basically bankrupting themselves, sending these armies everywhere. And that's the other thing is Carthage is doing relatively okay because they're not sending their armies all that many places. They sent Hamilcar to Sicily, but other than that, their armies are staying at home. So when you know the Romans show up in North Africa, you don't have to wonder where your army's going to get fed. It's going to get fed inside this city where they're all from. They're they're right there, but. Rome has this giant logistical issue where they have to sail across the ocean, sail ships constantly back and forth to supply these armies, to supply these ships. They're, and they nearly bankrupt the Senate over the next 23 years. And, you know, luckily Carthage kind of pursues for peace, or sues for peace um, at the end of the 23rd year because they've just sustained such massive hits. And the Romans were so utterly cash poor that, you know, they probably wanted to keep fighting, but they stopped themselves, um, which was probably a new thing for the Romans. Um, 
they're generally warlike uh, in nature, at least in my opinion. But the reason that this is so fantastically unique and uh, really interesting that I mention it is this is something you don't really expect to see. Um, Historically, before this time, city-states weren't able to take a good hit. You know, most of the time, most of the time. The Egyptians, they could take a hit or two. The, the Persians, they could take a lot of hits because they were so massive and they had so many resources at their uh, disposal. You know, Alexander the Great, his army that, you know, had just finished its campaign in Persia not too long before the Punic Wars started, um, his army would famously go into Persia and, I mean, he's got one shot. You know, and, and I'll do a separate podcast for him as well, but he's only got one shot when he goes in there. He's got his 32,000, 35,000, whatever number the historians disagree, of troops. If he goes in there and he loses one battle to the Persians, that's his army. It's gone. They're dead. There's not, he can't replace them. He has to go back to Macedonia, raise troops for you know, 10 plus years. You can't replace that. The Persians, they could lose army after army after army because they continually could just recruit new people, new people, new people, and send them out to fight. Because they had such a large population, they had so much money, and they had so many resources. Um, the Romans, they controlled the Italian peninsula, but that's still not a ton of people. But because of their increase in numbers, the relative fertility of the land that they have and their population increase they were able to continually sustain these heavy blows. You know, you lose 100,000 guys, you know, you can't replace the experience of the veteran troops that you get that you lose during that, but you can replace the numbers and put fresh, you know, green troops on the ground. And though that doesn't necessarily replace the quality of the people, it does requ- replace the quantity. And the Carthaginians are doing the exact same thing. Um, but not with their population size. They're doing it because they have excess money. So Rome has excess people. Carthage has excess money to hire more mercenaries. And in a way, they're both playing the same exact game, which is who can bleed the other one out first. You know, neither one really, I mean, Rome tries several times to knock out Carthage, but they really can't do it. Um, and, And the war basically becomes who can outlast the other. And at the end of it, it's very much like World War I trench battle, except no trenches, and it's mostly over the ocean. And at the end of this war, Carthage sues for peace. Rome claims that they had a better chance, and they would keep pushing uh, unless Carthage accepts their demands. And there's a little bit of debate, like Carthage kind of says, okay, let's sue for peace, and then Romans are like, okay, lay down all your weapons, and they do, and then Rome's like, okay, now we have demands. And Carthage is like, seriously, we just disbanded all of our armies. And Rome's like, well, we'll keep fighting if you don't accept our demands. And so it was kind of trickery that Rome got the technical win on the first Punic War. Um, Less strategy and superiority and more trickery. But all the same, they get it. And they levy a heavy, uh, you can call it a tax. Uh, It's a demand of money. And they level that for Carthage and also demand that Carthage completely disbands its navy and uh, gives Rome, I think, like 200 quadrings uh, of ships to replace some of the Romans. And Rome also gets Sicily and uh, I think a couple token colonies in Spain. 
Carthage agrees to this mostly because they don't really have an option anymore uh, because they've disbanded their armies. Um, Hamilcar returns from Sicily, having uh, technically never been defeated by the Romans. He goes into Carthage. He spends not very long at all in Carthage before heading to Spain. Spain is like the wild frontier for Carthage and for Rome. All right, there's tribes all up in Spain, and they are great fighters, famous fighters. They are the ones who actually invented the gladius sword, uh, which is famous by the Romans, but was also used by the Carthaginians. And uh, it's called gladius because gladiators wielded it in you know the arena, but that's really not the case. It's it's mostly famous because it is the primary weapon of Roman centurions and soldiers alike. Uh, Basically, from the time that the Romans get their hands on it uh, in the 200s BC, all the way up until Rome is over in the 4th and 5th century AC. Uh, It's a very extremely effective weapon. It's got a very wide blade um, that tapers to a point very quickly, and it's short. Um, It's about 4 feet long or so. If you've ever seen one, you've looked at it and you've been like, Okay, that doesn't seem very special. It just looks like an average sword. But in the hand of these uh, yeah, these ancient soldiers, they were extremely deadly for the time and uh, very effective against particularly barbarian tribes that wore little to no armor. And uh, the wide blades delivered a lot of damage. And the sharp points and the acute points really uh, would dig past chain mail and other armor against more organized opponents but spain is basically the cash crop area for carthage they start several new colonies there plus the trading that they have uh with african tribes that gives them ivory and other things like elephants and from all this trading that they do with places in asia minor and the greeks and um other various tribes they recover fairly quickly financially and you have to remember for carthage the main investment in the Punic War was financial. They lost a lot of people. Um, don't get me wrong. They they definitely deployed their own troops, but most of the casualties to sustained were by mercenaries, and those that uh, Carthaginians themselves actually sustained were usually naval tragedies where you would lose ships. Um and more or less the the burden on that was that you lost the ship, not the guys that you lost on it. You could replace the people um, as far as Carthage was concerned. So they bounced back relatively quickly financially and became very wealthy, became the exact same power that they were again. The Romans, on the other hand, uh, were still in a financial strait. They didn't have nearly as good of a trading system as the Carthaginians did. They had lost eight ton of soldiers in these conflicts and they gained sicily which was although a good trading place it wasn't enough to really bounce the romans back as quickly as they had expected and when carthage comes in to rome and pays them back in full like the next year uh all that carthage owed them the romans were genuinely so concerned that they hadn't levied enough against the Carthaginians that they upped it. And the Carthaginians, though annoyed, paid it again. 
And, you know, so the Romans got real cocky. They actually went into Spain and actually took over another colony. And, you know, Carthage was like, hey, what are you doing here? And, you know, the Romans were like, well, what are you going to do? You know? Um, and But more on that later. And the main point of this is Hannibal Carr went to Spain. And he campaigned there. And he did war against mostly Spanish tribes and creating colonies and so forth. And during this time, he raised his three sons, the Lion's Brood. Now, although the other two sons are very impressive, if you actually get into their histories, um, which I did on some of the research I did for this podcast, I'm going to focus mostly on what happened to Hannibal in these early years. The first thing you have to remember is Hannibal will fight his entire life on campaign and spend hardly any of his time in Carthage. The second thing you have to remember is Hannibal will never die in battle. The third thing you have to remember about all of this is Hannibal was raised by a general who had never lost a battle against the Romans, but who had lost many people and spent a huge portion of his life fighting them. And when he was pulled away, he probably felt like he had unfinished business and if people just got out of his way, he would finish this war. So the thing he instilled into his three sons was that no matter what you do, destroy Rome. Seek your revenge against the Romans. Get it. That is the point of your life. And then he instills that into his children quite young. I think there's a story. I don't really believe it. Um, but the ancient sources do. And we have to go with what they say. That when Hannibal was seven years old, his father called him in to uh, the house and forced Hannibal to swear that he would spend his life fighting the Romans. And he will see Rome fall. And then they, according to the sources, um, drank animal blood on this as sort of a sacred honoring promise. Like Hannibal gave his word. He's sworn to this. This is his destiny. And, you know, Hannibal Carr basically spends most of his life on campaign. Eventually his sons grow up and he teaches them battle tactics. He teaches them guerrilla warfare. He teaches them how to take the fight to the enemy, how to lead troops, how to lead mercenaries, how to think like a strategist, how to fight. You know, he takes his young sons into battle against Spanish tribesmen and, you know, rebellions and all this and that. And he really trains his children to be um, warriors, to be generals, to be leaders, you know. And, And you have to understand in Carthage's, like, setup, within their uh, city-state. That's not really a thing. Rome has it. Rome has this uh, persona of a warrior-like society. And the reason they have that is because it's true. You know, if you want to run for consulship or be a senator or be a really, you know, active and impressive politician in Rome, especially in the earlier periods, it helped a lot to have general on your resume, to have Uh, leader of troops, leader of armies. You know, I conquered this. I did that. I did this for the people and I brought all of these, you know, um, gold statues and all these marbles and all uh, all this ivory and everything else back to the people of Rome. 
That's why you should elect me because I provide for the people with my armies. I'm a great leader. Here's my evidence. Carthage didn't really have that. They had more of a merchant, you know, they valued people who were very businesslike, who could make lots of money, who were, you know, prominent in trade and things like that. And being a general, being a leader was, it was, it was a thing that people did. It just wasn't, you know, the number one thing that you did. And Hannibal wasn't raised in that. He didn't care about merchantilism. He didn't care about uh, the city-states, really. He cared about getting revenge for Carthage against Rome. That was his entire life. Yeah, that's his childhood. That's how he was raised. That's and, and I don't want to get into a uh, a dark area right off of our first podcast, but it's an interesting thing when we're given certain ideals and certain ideas as children from our youngest age all the way up, and our father pushes it, and our brothers push it, and everybody around us kind of pushes this idea. And it's, it's a form of brainwash where regardless of whether you've ever met these people that your father tells you you're supposed to hate and your brothers tell you you're supposed to hate and everybody around you, all the generals, all the soldiers who you hang out with, everybody is constantly talking about, man, if I could just get my hands on some Romans, man, if I could just get revenge, you know, man, if I could just go back to Sicily and have that one more, it's a form of brainwashing and it's not usually intentional, but we all have it. We all have something in our community, in our society, uh, where things are just sort of hammered into us because that's what everybody else is doing. You know, um, for instance, when my dad, uh, was younger than I, and he was in high school, they would have uh, baseball practice during school hours, you know, it was a scheduled time period that they would all go. If you're on the baseball team, you went and you practiced baseball. And because it was a set hour, uh, people would know when it was. And tobacco companies, back when it was still legal to give tobacco to anybody, would go to the baseball players and they would give them free dip. Um, for those of you who don't know what dip is, I'm sorry, my southern lingo. Um, it's chewing tobacco. It's you. It's a wad of ground up tobacco. You put it in your lip. I've always found it disgusting. If you are into it, I apologize for saying it's disgusting, but it's gross. And just uh, smoking cigarettes sounds ten times cleaner, and it, that also doesn't sound clean. But dipping tobacco was something that they just handed out to the kids, like you would hand out bubble gum. They handed them out. And it was for free, and it was just for baseball players, and it was a prestige thing. And, you know, my dad and all the baseball players got hooked on tobacco, and they dipped. And it wasn't a bad thing. Their parents didn't tell them no. Their parents didn't tell them anything. My dad's dad dipped. You know, everybody, it was a thing that the community did, and everybody did, and it was fine to do. And nobody said anything different. And so my dad did it, and it was just fine. It was normal. It was a part of everyday life. And, you know, then a bunch of studies come out and everybody realizes, oh, this is horrible for you. It's going to give you cancer. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't, you know, it's a big no-no now. And A, you have the addiction, uh, which is an added bonus that uh, Hannibal didn't have. But you also have the community effort where everybody else in the town 
said, ah, who gives a shit? You know, like, we're just going to keep doing what we're going to do. And you see this in bigger ways throughout the world. You see this in religion. You see this in governmental policies. You know, if your parents are Republican, eventually you become Republican. You know, if if your parents are Methodist, you're usually Methodist. Um, You know, and you see this in Islamic uh, extremes nowadays with terrorist organizations. Um, kids at a very, very young age are taught this radical form of uh, Islam and told, you know, this is what you do, this is what you do, this is what you do. Um, you know, we hate all these people. Jihad is the best, uh, X, Y, and Z. And the kids don't know any better because this is all they've ever known. And it's, you know, the people they're looking up to, their uh, spiritual leaders, their fathers, their uh, mentors, their friends, everybody else is saying the exact same thing. And it's just one big reverberation bubble where you're just hearing the same thing constantly repeated back to you and so when somebody introduces a new idea of being peaceful being nice forgiving the romans for a war that happened before you were born it's not really something that you take to all that well because it goes against what you're used to it goes against what you have always known to be right and if it goes against what you've always been right that means you must have been wrong all that time And people don't like hearing that. So Hannibal, although he was never in Sicily, would carry on his father's legacy and his father's battle against the Romans. And he would fulfill what his father dreamed of, which was to take the battle to the Roman heartland, to hit them where it counts, like they tried to do in Carthage in the First Punic War. And sadly, Hamilcar would die before he could see this fulfilled. But his sons, all three of them, would become generals for Carthage in Spain, and they would soon execute several different acts that would lead to Hannibal doing just what we all know him to do. On this next episode, you will hear about Hannibal's formation of his mercenary armies, um, his gathering of support in Carthage for the Second Punic War, the Romans' aggressions that will eventually lead to the Second Punic War, uh, Hannibal's crossing of the Alps, and the several major battles that Hannibal fights in Italy, and the tactics he uses that will take the Republic and bleed it dry to a point where their backing out of the war would have been logical and their doubling down on the war illogical. And yet somehow the Roman psyche will prove to prevail. But all of that and more on the next History Podcast. Thanks for listening.